Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Top Stories of the Week, presented by Girl on the Gov, the podcast. This exclusive bonus episode drops on Tuesdays and gives you the 411 on the need-to-know political news and tea. So as always, we'll keep you updated. Welcome to Top Stories of the Week. We are back with quite a few news stories for everybody because it is a news-heavy week, for sure. Oh, beyond. This is literally, she's a chunky monkey. Like, without a doubt, like this week, this list of stories, I mean, it's a mini novel. We'll, We'll obviously break it down as per usual, make it easier to understand, and of course, point out some of the main takeaways. But yeah, we have a lot to go through. But Speaking of stories, we have to tell a few from D.C. Yes. So we got back from D.C. this weekend and the week was full of really interesting (laughs) tidbits, I guess. It was really good trip politically, but it was also funny given like the people we saw and the experiences we had. So I don't know, like, we we wanted to save... We have a few, like, bombshells. I think we'll save for tomorrow's intro. So stay tuned and listen to tomorrow to hear the bombshells from our trip. But I don't know. Do you have something specific that you are thinking that we can spill for right now? I don't know. We made a note, a shared note. We did. We really did. track of everything. Also, to give context, we were there for a conference. Mm -hmm. We got invited by the New Deal, which is an organization that helps kind of train and create a pipeline of Democratic candidates into state and local roles to ultimately build the leaders of the future, essentially. So super cool to get invited to their conference. There was a lot of newly electeds there. Um, incumbents there from the state and local level that we got to meet. Some interviews even were were had. They wanted to invite some podcasters and new media folks like your girlies here to come in and interview some of their candidates and just be there for, for the conference. And it was a really cool experience. So there's the context where we were like, what were they doing? Just roaming the streets of DC for no reason. It's like, no, we were there for a reason. We were. And we saw a lot of other friends in the space as well. So we definitely made the most of our three days there. And we'll be back hopefully sometime in January. So there is lots more DC to be had for sure. But speaking of New Deal, just to point out to New Dealers, which is what they call people that are part of the organization that have been on the podcast, in case you want to go and familiarize yourself, specifically women in politics that have been on the show. So first of all, Molly Gray, who's a lieutenant governor of Vermont, go check out that episode. I believe that was end of July or start of August. So if you're scrolling back, looking at the timeline, that's where she's going to be. Then we also have 
Jocelyn Benson, who is Secretary of State of Michigan. She was also just reelected. That was also a summer 2022 episode. So go and check that out. And then for a 2021 episode, we have the amazing Ashley Venorni on. She is a council member in Cedar Rapids. So go check them all out. And we're going to post some pics, some cute pics, you know all that jazz. So go check out our feed. We are also catching up on social media. So I wonder if anyone thought we were dead for like the last week because between Thanksgiving and trying to take a social media break and then being too busy to post anything during, I was like, "Hmm, yeah, I wonder if anyone thought we just packed up the shop and went home, but no, we're still here. We just speaking of the conference and some, I guess, things we can, we'll share today. The rest we'll save tomorrow. But Mayor Pete spoke. He was the opener, opening speaker. And he is just an absolute icon and so smart, so articulate, just truly an incredible politician, candidate, elected, now appointed White House secretary. It's just he is everything of the sort. And we're obsessed obsessed with him such a good speaker like there are people that are good speakers in terms of like answering questions q and a he just goes like he already yeah it's just seamless everything he always says totally major props that's a skill major props and it was pretty like small conference i would say like think of like a small a medium-sized like wedding reception room in a hotel like it was like that size and then there were these awesome speakers that came in so tim ryan was there he, he came and spoke mm. in a panel first husband doug dougie, dougie boy. who else there were just a lot of really amazing panels like breaking down takeaways from midterms talking yeah. about the future 2024 i thought it was just really interesting hearing all of the different perspectives because you really had someone there from what it seemed like every state and just such diverse district every level and right, every like right. position. So there was like city council members, there were mayors, there were treasurers, which we talked to oh, a few treasurers oh, yeah. and have an interview ready for you guys to dive into what a state treasurer does. But yeah, from the kind of more obscure, I think, positions in government that don't always get highlighted, but obviously are so important. What? The way I remember. Okay, so guys, teaser is that we interviewed Tobias Reed, who is the Oregon State Treasurer. And it is like obscure to us or obscure to people that might not be super in the know in government. And Maddie, like during the interview, was like, Yeah, and like it's just such an obscure position to Tobias's face. It's true. It was like, dude. Anyways, I it was it was accurate, but it was funny. Yeah, he was kind it's of funny like, in my head. excuse you type of face. But I was like, it's true. Sure. Like most people don't know what a state treasurer does. And that makes it obscure. It doesn't mean it's not important. It's very, very important. Oh. But as far as like yeah. how how much awareness surrounds it and how much it's highlighted, it's like barely ever highlighted. I've never really understood what a treasurer does. And I'm very politically informed. So it's definitely one that like not a lot of people know about, aka obscure. Obscure. Also, the other thing I will say as a takeaway on treasurers, they're all tall. Both yeah. the treasurers there, both over six six, six foot six. That's oh, also yeah. a theme and we, for Sam us. Sam right and now. I sat like in between them. Like <laughs> I had one on my left, Sam had one on her right, and we're just like the two short little girls in the room, surrounded by the two tallest 
men in the room who were both treasures. But anyways, it was such a great trip and there will be tea to come because we also Mm -hmm. did like a capital tour and we saw some shit let me just say so tune in tomorrow for all that tea but we have so much news to run through today that we just we must get right into these top stories of the week yeah yo so kicking it off is our kind of usual congressional updates because it's another huge week for Washington as the lame duck session of the 117th Congress grinds on. The three biggest lame duck issues are government funding, defense authorization bill, and tax extenders. So the blocking and tackling of governing, if you will. So far, congressional leaders aren't doing much of either, apparently. So to kick it off, government funding. As far as we can tell, there's no real movement here. There's no agreement on the, quote, top line number for the fiscal year 2023 spending. And without that, the House and Senate appropriations panels can't drop the 12 annual spending bills. So the issue is non-defense spending. Democrats won't go along with a big increase in Pentagon funding supported by both parties without an increase in spending on social programs. Republicans complain that Democrats got new money for social programs in the Inflation Reduction Act and won't approve any more. So a stalemate is, is happening here. Um, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is the key here, and McConnell and other senior Senate Republicans are taking a tough line despite a high-level meeting in the White House last week where everyone promised to get along. (laughs) So the continuing resolution funding the government expires on December 16th. It's clear another CR is going to be needed to avoid a shutdown. There's not going to be a shutdown, just FYI, apparently, but December 23rd. According to Punchbowl. According to Punchbowl. December 23rd seems the likely new end date, but the possibility of an unprecedented year-long CR until the end of September 2023 is now really in play. And so Punchbowl still thinks a deal will happen, yet neither side is making it easy. So a list of year-long CR anomalies are going to be sent to the Hill today, according to a source familiar with the situation. And these are basically changes that need to be enacted in order to keep federal agencies operating if current spending levels are extended. So the White House is getting ready for the full year CR scenario. The Pentagon has never been funded under a year-long CR, and national security officials from the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin on down will be pretty irate over this possibility. So expect pressure to amp up on that front. And Congress has also acted on President Joe Biden's request for $37 billion in new military and economic aid for Ukraine or billions of dollars in disaster relief and COVID prep funding. Ukraine is a huge priority for Biden and many lawmakers in both parties. So that is the government funding side of things. Moving into the defense authorization side of this of this topic, the National Defense Authorization Act, a must-pass defense policy bill that has been approved every year since the early 1960s, is going to be released as early as today. The outlook is good. House Majority Leader Steiny Hoyer has scheduled a floor vote this week. The Senate could move pretty quickly as well. McConnell and Republicans have been demanding action on this bill for a while. And the issue here is the Pentagon's COVID-19 vaccine mandate. So Republicans have pressed for ending the mandate, and it looks like Democrats and the White House may sign off on that. But what happens to the thousands of service members forced out for refusing to take the vaccine? The two sides are trying to find some very loose language that would allow the Pentagon to deal with that, according to a Republican familiar with the situation. So tax extenders is the third bucket here. So there's a lot of buzz about a potential tax extender bill, possibly even a package including a 
uh, renewal of the expanded child tax credit, but the outlook here is hazy. So there's been bipartisan back and forth between senior members of the House Ways and Means and Senate finance panels, yet not a lot of concrete action. So no one can seem to agree what would be in a tax extender package. Again, Republican leaders are are key here. And McConnell and House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy haven't expressed much support. So guess what? We'll have to see and we'll have to keep Keep you updated. updated. So there's that on that more policy wonk budget nerdy stuff, but still very important to keep track of. Mm, Well, that's the buzz on the dollar dollar bills, y'all. In terms of a little runoff happening today, just just a little one, we're down in Georgia and not us physically, although that would be pretty cool. Regardless, we're talking about the Georgia Senate runoff. The extended Senate campaign in Georgia gives Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican challenger Herschel Walker a second chance to persuade voters to send them to Washington. But without party control of Congress at stake and absent other candidates on the ticket, the runoff looks different from the November general election. The results of the AP VoteCast survey illustrate some of the challenges each candidate faces on Tuesday. Walker will need to turn out a GOP base that wasn't enamored with him to start. (laughs) I wonder why. I really wonder why. And do it without the more popular Governor Brian Kemp on the ballot. Warnock must get his coalition of some lower propensity voting groups to turn out. And both candidates have to motivate voters despite a predetermined balance of power in Washington. Now, let's talk about some of the college voting obstacles, which many of you may be familiar with. Under Georgia law, public colleges and university students can use their student ID to vote. Those at private schools, including seven out of 10 HBCUs, cannot. It's a provision that voting rights experts say continues to confuse voters, especially college students or others who already face barriers, and results in many of them voting elsewhere or not at all. Furthermore, they argue it has a disproportionate impact on student voters of color because seven out of 10 of Georgia's historically black colleges and universities are private institutions. I mean, that seems confusing as shit to me, so I understand why it is. Students in general often have a more difficult time accessing the ballot box because of all sorts of things. For example, their addresses often change. Voters of color face barriers to the ballot box as well. So when you take that overlap, you're making it even harder for a subset of voters whom it's already quite difficult to cast a ballot, a senior voting rights attorney at the Georgia American Civil Liberties Union said. There are about 157,000 registered Georgia voters who don't have an ID number on file with the Secretary of State's office, according to Vote Riders, a nonpartisan nonprofit organization that advocates for voters who live in states with strict voter ID laws. The Office of the Georgia Secretary of State confirmed the number. There are at least 10,000 students enrolled at private HBCUs in Georgia. Voting rights experts acknowledge that the number of voters in Georgia affected by the provision ultimately represents a narrow slice of the state's electorate. But given how close major races in the state have been over the past two election cycles, they also emphasize that any impact the law has could affect the outcome of any close race. Take a look at any recent Georgia election and you'll see that every vote really matters to that outcome right now. The margins are exceptionally thin, says Daniel Lang, the senior director of Voting Rights Unit, the Campaign Legal Center, a nonpartisan voting watchdog group. So in a race like this, making sure that access is as broad as possible is essential to make sure the results reflect the desire of Georgia voters. Oh, boy. Yes. It's going to be interesting to see what happens here, especially given this runoff being so different from 2020s, like as far as what's at stake, what, you know, the candidates involved, everything's a little bit different than last time. So 
seeing who turns out will be again very very interesting so fingers crossed on all fronts but totally and and i will just make this one point this really goes to show how different voting laws are in every state totally it's it really it makes it so much more confusing then, I mean, it's just confusing from the jump, but it just goes to show, like, say you were moving somewhere and you're trying to figure out your your voter stuff. This is confusing stuff. Yes. Okay. Well, moving on to the next story, which is this marriage bill that passed last week. Biden has not signed it yet, but there, I think, has also been some confusion as to what this bill will do and, like, know why it's why it's happening so legislation that ensures same-sex marriage and interracial marriages are recognized as legal unions appears headed for final approval and president joe biden's signature a bipartisan agreement that reflects a wider acceptance of gay rights in both congress and the country the measure which would protect the rights of about half a million married couples passed the senate last week and heads to the house this week for near certain approval For many of the couples whose marriages will be protected, approval of the Respect for Marriage Act brought a sense of relief and was cause for celebration, but they also say more work needs to be done. So the measure advanced due to supporters' fears that a conservative majority on this U.S. Supreme Court may undo rights that took decades to obtain, just as the court overturned the longstanding right to abortion earlier this year. And it does not stop states from denying these couples the right to marry in the future should the Supreme Court ever overturn the 2015 ruling legalizing same-sex marriage nationwide. The legislation says that federal and state governments must recognize legally celebrated marriages regardless of the individual's sex, race, ethnicity, or national origin, and it would allow people to sue to enforce those rights. It also maintains current religious freedom or conscious protections, stating that nonprofit religious organizations or nonprofits that are religious in nature do not need to provide goods, services, or accommodations for the celebration of these marriages. For example, a church that doesn't support same-sex marriage would not be required to rent out space for such a union. And then after Roe was overturned, Clarence Thomas wrote, quote, I agree that nothing in the court's opinion should be understood to cast out on precedents that do not concern abortion. For that reason, in future cases, we should consider all of this court's substantive due process precedents that included Oberg. I can never say this word, the the case that legalized same-sex marriage. Oh, Ober- Ober- Damn it. I usually... Mm. Obergefell. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Obergefell. Ober- That's going to bother me. I need to look it up. Okay. Oh, Obergefell. It is. Yeah. So anyways, Clarence Thomas, when Roe was overturned, basically threatened Obergefell. And so the statements understandably terrified a lot of people and gave new momentum to the Respect for Marriage Act, said Andrew Kopelman, who is a professor of law at Northwestern University. And so he also said, we've got a half a million same-sex couples in the United States. And Thomas essentially says to them, I'm coming for you next. And so that generates some urgency that was not there before. So there's no case on the horizon that asked the Supreme Court to undo rulings that would protect same-sex marriage and interracial marriages, but Democrats opted to act while they had control of both chambers of Congress and the White House. So that happened last week. And again, this doesn't like guarantee protections, but it was an important like proactive step by Congress to make this happen, which is always a good thing. We love a proactive, a proactive moment. We do. We do. And there needs to be more of that. I think that was honestly such a common theme this week 
at the conference, just in so many conversations about how so often in politics, we're playing defense and we're not playing offense. And if you're not playing offense, you're actually losing. And I think this is a great example of offense and there needs to be more of it. This needs to be step one and there needs to be more that comes from it. But that's what Democrats need to be doing more often is offense. And we saw so much Republican offense over the last 20, 30 years at the state level. And the Democrats the Democrats. <laughs> the Democrats really need to kick it into gear across across the board. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, the water? <laughs> oh Jesus. Jesus Christ. Guys, I have one brain cell left. My Atlanta. But nonetheless, are we talking SCOTUS? SCOTUS mm-hmm. de la Scrotus? Mm-hmm. I honestly, I was pulling up a story earlier about this, about one of the two cases happening this week. And I was like, it was really aesthetically pleasing. And I was kind of you like- You need to post that picture that we took at the- Oh, so- the ominous one? Because it was like, we when we went and took our picture in front of the Supreme Court last week, it, it was like the rain was coming in and all these dark, dark clouds were like over the Supreme Court. And like, honestly- perfect picture to describe what's happening this week in SCOTUS. A thousand percent. And we'll post, I'm going to do, oh, there's a bunch of good shots. I'll do a static one and I'll post her story. So just guys go check it out. Go give it a like, go help our engagement. Thanks. But no, seriously, it was like actually doing a little bit of, what's the word that I'm looking for? It's predicting the future. Okay. It's giving foreshadowing. There it is. There it is. It was absolutely giving foreshadowing. Okay. Nonetheless, the Supreme Court is about to confront a new elections case. Speaking of elections, a Republican-led challenge asking the justices for a novel ruling that could significantly increase the power of state lawmakers over elections for Congress and the presidency. The court is set to hear arguments Wednesday, a.k.a. tomorrow, in a case from North Carolina where Republican efforts to draw congressional districts heavily in their favor were blocked by a Democratic majority on the state Supreme Court because the GOP map violated the state constitution. I'd also like to say that that was a little bit of a run-on sentence and I am out of breath. Nonetheless, a court-drawn map produced seven seats for each party in last month's midterm elections in highly competitive North Carolina, which, personal note, the Senate on the Dem side did not fund enough. Anyways, back to facts and not just my commentary. The question for the justices is whether the U.S. Constitution's provision giving state legislatures the power to make the rules about the, quote, times, places, and manner of congressional elections cuts states' courts out of the process. This is the single most important case on American democracy and for American democracy in the nation's history, said former federal judge Michael Ludick, prominent conservative who's joined the legal team defending the North Carolina court decision. Three conservative justices already have voiced some support for the idea that the state court had improperly taken powers given by the Constitution when it comes to federal elections. Fourth has written approvingly about limiting the power of state courts in the area, but the Supreme Court has never invoked what is known as independent state legislature theory. Now, if you listen to our episode with Ben Sheen, which talks all about this theory, what's at stake here, you'll quickly know that independent state legislature theory is a bunch of bogus, bogus yeah, baloney like, bullshit. That might be one of like our most important episodes. Yeah. And when we did it, it was like similar vibes to when Roe was being threatened, being like, you know, just the threat was there, but it hadn't really sunk into people yet. And so we're here now. This 
this case is here and it's really important for people to understand what this all means and its implications. And Ben did an incredible job explaining it. So definitely go listen to that so you can understand kind of what's at stake here. Because again, like this this man said, single most important case on American democracy, like it's that big. Amen to that. It's also just so wild how some of these things kind of get swept under the rug. And this is a good example of that. But it will not get swept under the rug if you go listen to the episode. And therefore, after you've listened to the episode, exactly, share it and let everyone know about this. Make sure that they are paying attention to this case. Now, for the other case in the news this week, we're talking about gay rights. The Supreme Court is being warned about the potentially dire consequences of a case involving a Christian graphic artist who objects to designing wedding websites for same-sex couples. Rule for the designer and the justices will expose not only same-sex couples, but also Black people, immigrants, Jews, hi, Muslims, and others to discrimination in the liberal group say. <laughs> Both sides have described for the court... <laughs> I find myself too funny. It's really a problem. Rule against her and the justices will force artists from painters and photographers to writers and musicians to do work that is against their faith, conservative groups argue. Both sides have described for the court what lawyers sometimes call a parade of horribles that could result if the ruling doesn't go their way. That sounds like something out of like, I don't know, 1500s England, the parade of horribles. Like it's like almost like I know we just had a pandemic, but it sounds like a thing that happened during like the Black Plague or a weird like old school war, you know? Yeah. And after the it just the, sounds like the parade of horribles. Yeah. Yeah. So I ironically biblical. There we go. Okay. Ironically biblical. <laughs> the case marks the second time in five years that the Supreme Court has confronted the issue of a business owner who says their religion prevents them from creating works for a gay wedding. This time, most experts expect that the court, now dominated six to three by conservatives and particularly sympathetic to religious plaintiffs, will side with Lori Smith, the Denver area designer in the case, and potentially the only Republican in Denver. But the American Civil Liberties Union, in a brief filed with the court, was among those that called Smith's argument carte blanche to discriminate whenever a business's product or service could be characterized as expressive, a category of businesses that could range from luggage to linens to landscaping. Those businesses, they said, could announce, we do not serve Blacks, gays, or Muslims. Smith's attorneys at the Arizona-based Alliance Defending Freedom say that's not true. I think it's disingenuous and false to say that wouldn't for Lori in the case would take us back to those times where people were denied access to essential goods and services based on who they were. Adding a win for Lori here would never permit such conduct, like some of the hypotheticals that they're raising. I feel like everything in terms of law is hypotheticals, right? Yeah. I mean, I think you have to like weigh all of the potential implications of something. So yeah, I think it's valid to raise these concerns because at the end of the day like it could actually really infringe on people's rights to the nth degree so all these businesses being able to say they don't want to serve certain people is definitely a dangerous road to go down but yeah that is the kind of synopsis of that case that's also the supreme court is is looking at this week so i'm worried about both worried about both yeah, same. So we will keep you updated. But those are your chunky news stories for the week. Tune in tomorrow for, first of all, our intro where we will be spilling some tea, guys, for real. And totally. our interview that we did in person um, 
at the conference last week with the former mayor of Parkland and the state rep from Parkland, Florida. And I just also want to say first time like really sitting and doing a guest interview in person like that. So um, I've been playing with the audio a little bit. It's a little bit different, but it doesn't sound terrible. So just forewarning on that, but super incredible interview and conversation that like everyone must listen to. I genuinely think it's one of our most like moving conversations totally. we've ever had. Like it was a, it's a little bit of a tearjerker. So if you're going to listen to it, maybe like not in a spot where you're nervous about someone seeing you cry. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, honestly. Yeah, it was that. It's true. So true. Like very moving conversation, a very important one. And I mean, also just like having the most moving conversation interview we've ever done be in person was also mm-hmm. like a whole nother layer that just added to the magic, I feel like. So definitely tune in tomorrow for all of that. It should be an amazing episode. But that is it. That is it for today. That's the tea. And if you we'll know see anybody you in Georgia, check on them to make sure that they go vote today as you're listening to this. What you Toodles. <laughs>